listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Paige Wilson. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast brought to you by IBM. This is the show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Thanks for joining us for episode 267. Hey, Paige. Hey, Mark. We got some news. Oh? Yeah. So, listeners, if you'd like to join OGGN as a podcast host for Oil & Gas Onshore, we are starting a contest to look for the new host. So, Justin Godier, who's the host of that show, he's still part of the family. He's going on to do bigger and better things. And so, Paige, we have a podcast that has a huge existing audience that people love, that has a sponsor, and we have nobody to run it. So if you've ever wanted to be a podcast host, make a couple of dollars and join the OGGN family. Go check us out on LinkedIn, especially by the time you hear this episode, all the details will be out there. We're running a little contest and basically we're going to allow you to compete to become a host for oil and gas onshore. So it's gonna be a lot of fun. So go check it out on LinkedIn. Go ahead and enter your videos. Go ahead and suck up the fear of not doing a perfect job. We don't care because we're not perfect either. We just want to see your personality. Y'all, if I can do it, y'all can do it. Yeah. So great stuff. We've only done this once before, and I'm looking forward to seeing what happens with this. Now, seeing what happens, looks <laughs> like we got a review. Oh, this is the one I was laughing at last. Yeah. You want to read it? <laughs> okay. Don't listen if you want to learn something. One star. Listen to the podcast the other day for the first time and was disappointed in the lazy approach of how they quote unquote teach their listeners about what's happening in the industry. The only thing I learned the entire episode is who they voted for in the last election. Not to mention they completely dismissed the idea of price gouging and record high profits for a number of big oil companies. Sad. Now, Y'all have listened to us for a long time, and you know that when we get negative reviews or bad reviews, we own it. If we did something wrong, we try to correct it, and if we're just making somebody unhappy, we apologize. But you know what? I'm this not apologizing. Well, no, in this case, Paige, this isn't somebody leaving a negative review. This is absolutely a troll. You know how much I you know how I know that? Because it says oil and gas expert via Apple Podcasts. Yeah, which means they grab my tagline from LinkedIn, which means they know who I am. So first thing, this is really bad trolling. I've had six years old troll us much better than this. Second thing, you know, if you don't have anything else to do, if you don't have any friends or family or anything, and I get that you're hanging out at two o'clock in the morning typing negative podcast reviews, but come on, dude, or do that. You could probably do a little something better for both for yourself and for the industry. So just as, like I said, this is just a really bad job of trolling. I mean, really bad. So oil and gas expert via Apple Podcasts from the United States, you can do better. Nah. All right, let's do some news stories. All right, so the first one, and I apologize to everyone, my sinuses are so bad right now, so I'm kind of dudish. Egypt, Equatorial Guinea, discuss petroleum cooperation. Yeah, so this is Equatorial Ghana, which is Thank on you. the south or kind of the middle west coast of Africa, slightly south, mm -hmm. right? This is really, really cool. Now, so what's cool about this is you have two countries that are on the same continent that sometimes they get along, sometimes they don't you know, over history, but they both have needs that the other can help with. So one of the things is Equatorial Guiana is looking for help with the technical expertise it needs to convert its 
private automobile fleet to run on compressed natural gas. So not only changing over the fuel lines and the pumps and the, you know, the fuel injectors and everything else to get that liquid natural gas into that internal combustion engine, but how do you build the stores to refill those passengers that run on compressed natural gas? How do you build the pipelines? And so it's, it's a problem that the two countries can actually help each other a lot because Egypt has a lot of experience that. And then the other thing is, they're also looking at building a refinery, a joint refinery. Now, what's really powerful about that, if you look at Africa and if you look at the Middle East, most of the refining capacity in that part of the world is in the Middle East, almost none in Africa. So this is huge if they could do a joint venture and build a refinery. That's going to unchain them from some of the petrochemicals and fuel costs from the Middle East and allow them to actually do it themselves, the same way that a lot of countries do it, right? So I think this is wonderful. I think it's awesome. Uh, I think these two countries need to work together. It looks like they are. They've signed a memorandum of understanding. Now, what's really funny is that they're prepping also for COP27, which is going to be in Egypt next November. And that's the whole climate change conference. And basically what they're saying is like, look, we're going to host COP27. We understand that we have an impact to the environment. We need to mitigate that. But don't y'all come over here and be crazy stuff. Because <laughs> that's not what we're about. We got to feed our people. Our people need to put fuels in their cars. So let's look at this from a kind of a middle of the road approach. No crazy, you know, anti-oil and gas stuff at this conference. So love seeing this start off. And I love seeing the cooperation between these two countries. So good job. All right. So the next one is Texas Railroad Commission turns to AI. Fascinating, right? We know the Texas Railroad Commission, if you... Look at the range of maturity and technology from, say, 1 to 10. They're probably a 3. In all serious, I'm not making fun of them. I'm just saying they're not the most high-tech part of, of the industry by far. And so what they're doing here is they're using some AI that they've – actually, it's machine learning that they've programmed itself that eventually turned into AI. And they're looking at it as a way to help reduce the number of earthquakes in Texas that are usually caused by injection of produced water, Right. Now, this AI program, which is under the supervision of their former technicians, so the AI program is not going to make the decision. The people that's always made this decision are going to make this decision on the permits. The AI is just helping them do it. But Paige, they had a backlog of over three months. And by just basically training this AI, their backlog for these permits are zero. Oh, that's awesome. So from an operator point of view, instead of you waiting months and months and months and because months. Because this isn't an extensive permitting process. Yeah, you know that very well. And so I just think it's a great use of technology. And I think the Railroad Commission in Texas was right to actually bring this in. It's They're not losing any jobs. It's going to allow the people that approve these permits to do a better job because the AI will spot stuff that normal people may have missed. Eliminate human error. Yeah. yeah. Now, the one little thing I have a problem with this, and if y'all have listened to the show for a long time, you remember years ago when I used to say fracking didn't cause earthquakes and I had a professor at the University of Miami reach out to me. He did a presentation and I was wrong. And I realized that the injection of produced water in the wrong or right, depending on how you look at it, geological formations can increase the amount of seismic activity. Yeah. But, and please, geophysicists, no hate mail, I know I'm simplifying this, but the thing is, as these plates move, they create tension, they create pressure, which is stored energy, kinetic energy. And when those plates slip, that energy is released. That's what's called an earthquake. And so, one of the things that people don't talk about is the fact that these smaller seismic activities, smaller earthquakes that are caused by wastewater injection could, on the realm of possible, possibilities, possibilities. Both of us, huh, yeah, Mark? Could actually help prevent major earthquakes. So instead of having one major earthquake every 150, 200 years, that same fault could have smaller earthquakes every 10 years, and it's releasing that energy, but at a much smaller scale. Oh. So one of the things that people don't talk about is this study that's been going on for about almost 20 years now, looking at that relationship between seismic activity and wastewater injection. 
is there's scientists in all around the world that are actually trying to use it to keep earthquakes from destroying cities. I was going to say the San thing, Andreas Fault. Yeah, the exact same thing they're trying to mitigate here. They may actually do on purpose in other parts of the world, including California, where they're worried about severe earthquakes. Now, the cool thing about all this is now that the Railroad Commission is using AI, not only can they use that data to speed up the permitting process, they're now contributing to that wealth of knowledge. So geophysicists and geologists can figure out if they want this to use as a tool. It could be the Railroad Commission could help end major earthquakes around the world. How cool would that be? That would be and, awesome. And like I said, no hate mail. I know that's you know way out in the future and not 100% sure, but it just would be a cool thing to have happen. All right, so the next one is API announces new executive leadership positions. Yeah, I knew this was coming only because of how close this group of API and OGG has become this year. So we kind of got the inside scoop on this. The cool thing is there's a changing of the guard. The change in the guard, the new people who are not that young, by the way, um, <laughs> have real hands-on experience. Good. So, no, that's exactly what we need. So Padella was a former advisor at Chevron. He worked over like 17 different countries over his 30-year career, multiple PhDs. He knows the oil and gas industry. He understands the business. He understands the risk. It's really great. And then they also brought in a new counselor for corporate policy. And once again, he understands oil and gas legislation. The regulatory affairs. Regulatory. And so API, in my opinion, is up in their game. They're taking a couple of people that are leaving the organization who did a very good job over their term and replacing them with really thought leaders in that space. So good job, API. I don't know how y'all can afford the former senior advisor at Chevron. I got a feeling he's probably doing it because it's the right thing to do, not for the money. But still, that's some super great talent that API is bringing in, which is just going to help all of us. All right. EU sanctions on Russia. Oil will sustain inflationary pressures. You want to say it again? No, you say it. Y'all, I took a Benadryl. I'm sorry. (laughs) Okay, so short version of the story. This is another sanction to completely disconnect Europe from buying oil from Russia by the end of 22, which is just right around the corner. They're doing this. I can't believe they're doing this. They have the full support of European Union people for the most part, I should say. Yeah, for the, for most, the part. most part. <laughs> and there's exceptions in here based on needs. So like Hungary still will be permitted to buy Russian oil because they have no other choice. Their people will freeze to death if they don't, which I think is cool that even though they're doing these sanctions, they're thinking about it from a humanitarian point of view and, and allowing exceptions where it makes sense. Now, one of the things they don't talk about a whole bunch here is that certain parts of Europe will still be allowed to buy Russian oil and gas from other countries. So we've got to be really, really careful that that is being put in place once again to help the poor European countries that need the help. But it's also opening a door for black market oil, right? Yeah. So when you say I'm banning your ability to buy oil from Russia, that's a pretty good, easy thing to enforce. Right. right? Yeah. But when you say that you can buy oil from, let's say, China and Without the same sanctions, but then China buys that oil from Russia, you're opening a back door for black market oil. And the EU understands that, and they're trying to figure out a solution. I don't know if there's a really easy solution that's cost-effective for this, but this is just, unfortunately, for all my – we have a lot of listeners in Russia. So, unfortunately, for a lot of the Russian people, this is going to hurt your economy more. This oil embargo the world is starting to enforce or been enforcing on Russia is killing their economy. I think you've heard me say this before. I think Putin overestimated what it was going to take. And honestly, I think now there's no way for him to get out of this without losing his position, probably losing a lot of personal money. And it's really interesting to watch Europe do the right things while Europe is facing an energy shortage of worldwide proportions, right? Yeah. So, you know, I love the fact that these country leaders are doing the right thing regardless of how much it may hurt themselves. 
and actually you know not be good for their constituents, but it's really the right thing to do. So we'll keep eye on this. I don't expect this to do anything other but continue. I expect that noose around Russia's ability to sell oil and gas to continue to tighten. At some point, it's going to end. It's either going to end by Russia crying uncle or going to collapse like they did in the 80s and it'll have yeah. to start all over again. And I don't want that to happen. Most of the Russian people aren't behind this, right? Right, yeah. And they're the ones suffering right now, which is weird because not that long ago, we were talking about before the war started in Ukraine, I was talking about the troops being piled up and not suspected this was going to happen. And I actually thought that, that if they went into war with Ukraine, it'd actually be a boom for the Russian economy. What I didn't forecast is the world's reaction to it. Yeah. So, you know, if you're in the Russian government right now, y'all need to do something quick because this is not going anywhere. I you're, doubt the Russian government's listening to us. I don't know. They cyber this- attacked us, remember? Oh, well. It could have been the government. That was a joke, by the way. Yeah. If y'all didn't hear that episode with IBM, that was that's a joke. They didn't really cyber attack us. Yeah. All What's right. next? Why Saudi Arabia isn't giving up on its Russian oil alliance? Yeah, very, very interesting. So first, when you hear OPEC and you hear OPEC Plus, OPEC Plus basically is OPEC plus Russia. <laughs> whole bunch of geopolitics going in here. A couple of things in this article. So one of the things in this article, they talk about how Saudi Arabia identified the U.S. fracking boom in the early 2000s as a threat to their economy, which it sort of is, or I should say was. But one of the things that people that love that theory miss is that when the Saudis flooded the market and dropped prices in 2014 and 2016 to put the U.S. frackers out of business, in 2014, we still could not export oil. It was still illegal. We still had that 50-year oil export ban in place. And it wasn't until I think 2016 that we actually lifted that. So it could be the Saudis saw that we would lift that export ban. I didn't see it coming, but it could be their experts did. And so they figured that in and all this is legit. And they really did intentionally try to crush the U.S. oil revolution. I kind of find that hard to believe. I do know that both Saudi and Russia have spent money. I mean, if you remember the movie Gaslight, that movie If you do a lot of research, you can figure out that movie was actually financed by Saudi Arabia. But if you do even more research and you know who to talk to, the money that Saudi Arabia used to finance the movie came from Russia. And so both Russia and Saudi Arabia, from a marketing point of view, of course, saw the U.S. as a threat. I totally get that, right? I would not be surprised if the U.S. does the same sort of thing when it makes sense to crush or to help our markets thrive, right? So I don't have a problem with that. What I do have a problem with this is that with everything going on, Saudi Arabia has not cut ties with Russia, even though they're longtime nemesis, which tells me that Saudi is really worried about the money. And right now, you know, you know we have an energy shortage. We have a shortage of hydrocarbons, among other types of energy. Both Russia and OPEC are talking about how that if they want to, they can increase production and fill out that shortage. I don't believe it, Paige. I don't believe either OPEC or Russia, either one of them can produce another drop than what they're producing now. And I think Russia's production will start declining because they can't get the parts and pieces they need yeah, to get the oil right. fields working. Yeah, yeah. And all it's going to take is you know one of the other members of OPEC to realize what's going on and to up their production and break out of the cartel and OPEC will fall apart, which will then literally not – Russia will just disappear. And Saudi Arabia's ability to control oil prices will also disappear. So this is a whole mix of geopolitics. And you also have to remember Saudi Arabia is one of our few military friends in the Middle East, right? But our current government hasn't been showing them a lot of love, which right now they shouldn't be showing them a lot of love. So, you know, lots of things going on here. Just really interesting that OPEC has refused to cut ties with Russia. And the reason is quite simply money. They don't really like each other. I can't believe that the royal family in Saudi Arabia supports the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And don't get me wrong. I do realize this is the same royal family 
that caused the reporter to be murdered and cut up in little pieces and hauled out in a bag, right? But I just don't yeah. see them having anything in common except money. And if you listen to the show for any length of time, you know that I've always wished that it was Russia and the U.S. that partnered up in this. Now there's no way that will ever happen. But this is you know just pure money, pure geopolitics. At some point, if nations start boycotting some of the stuff that Saudi Arabia is going to do because of their connection to Russia, I think they'll change their mind. But that's Probably. out of the future somewhere. Yeah. All right. Speaking of Ukraine, Ukraine to halt coal, oil, gas exports ahead of critical winter. Yeah. So Ukraine normally exports actually a lot of coal and some crude and a decent amount of natural gas. The problem is with what's going on right now, they have to produce their own energy. And they're basically missing about 40% of their ability to do it. So if they take every all the coal, all the oil, and all the gas that they produce themselves – and if they don't sell it, if they keep it all in-house to provide their nation, they're still missing 35%, right? There's still that 30% shortage. Mm-hmm. And their electricity is heavily reliant on nuclear, which normally is awesome. But in a wartime, it's not that hard to bring a nuclear power plant down. Yeah. And, and I don't mean bombing the damn thing. I mean, literally, you just drive up Try, to it yeah, and start shutting it things down, and yeah. it's cut off, right? And now you, you have a perimeter, and nobody can do anything. So they need to hold on to everything. And the problem with them not exporting anything is that's going to cut into their revenue. And they're already almost bankrupt because of the war. I will say this much, and Paige, I've showed you this several times. It's amazing, not just countries, but there's private individuals. Remember the millionaire or billionaire in Pakistan who literally bought 20 fighter jets out of his own That's pocket right, yeah. And sent to the Ukraine? Mm-hmm. So, you know, and I hate to see warfare. I hate to see homes and cultures destroyed and parents lose kids and kids lose parents. And I mean, a lot of them were poor to begin with. Yeah, wartime is not something that is nice, no. right? But there's a glimmer of hope in all this. And it's the way the world came together when this happened, mm-hmm. the way the Ukraine people says basically, no, mm-hmm. right? We are not going to let you take over Ukraine. We'll fight down to the last person. You know, all that stuff is really cool. I think the Ukraine's going to come out of this in a really good place. The next thing that we're going to have to deal with, Ukraine and Russia first, Europe second, U.S. third, is this food shortage that's coming at us like a freight train. One thing will pull your armies down quicker than anything else is lack of calories, lack of food, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, let's see what where all this stuff goes. But Ukraine has to halt its export of its natural resources because they need it internally and they don't have other choice. How cool would it be if we could somehow build a pipeline really quickly and just supply Ukraine with all the natural gas they need? We can't, but that right. would be cool. Yeah, it's hopeful, but not realistic at the moment. All right, so major lithium producer could shut German plant over EU rule. So this is really interesting. So the EU is looking really hard at taking the different lithium compounds and classifying them as a hazardous substance. All of a sudden, you've doubled the price to move lithium around. Special hazmat suits, special decamination areas, mm-hmm. and all kinds of different rules and regulations add a lot of costs. The first thing this German company is saying is that if the European Union passes this, if it classifies lithium as hazardous substance, their plant, which is a big employer in Germany, will just shut down. They can't afford the price increase. But the other thing that's interesting about this is if this happens, you have two parts of the European Union government that normally agree upon everything and walk parallel are now going to be in a bit of a conflict. So you have this one group in the European Union that's trying to protect the health of its citizens, saying that lithium is now a hazardous substance, has to be treated as such, blah, blah, blah. But you have this other group that says we need to move to all electric vehicles, and we only the biggest constraint we have is lithium batteries. That's the part that makes the electric vehicles most expensive and also the part that slows their development because there's not a lot of lithium in the world, Right. So if this happens, I think what you're going to see is that the cost of electric vehicles are going to go through the roof in Europe, which I think will kill their adoption 
probably for 10 or 15 years, maybe even longer. And I think you'll see internal combustion engines come back. Then you look at all the EV stations, all the work, all the companies that Shell and BP have bought for this energy transition, all of a sudden they're going to be worthless. If Europe stays internal combustion engines and companies and people and governments are planning for electric vehicle future and it never happens, all that money, all those acquisitions, all those charging stations are just a waste of money and time. So it's it's really what a double edged sword. Yeah, right, right. And so it's gonna be really interesting to see where this goes. Eighty nine percent of the demand for electric vehicles in Europe right now is being constrained by lithium batteries. Right, that's a big number. That's almost ninety percent. So it's be interesting to see where this goes. And by the way, lithium is hazardous. So I don't know. When I read this, is like I thought it was always considered. Yeah, that's a what I thought too. <laughs> and um, I'm kind of curious to see what they already have in place versus what they want to enforce. Yeah, anybody in the audience is in that world, that lithium world here in the U.S. I'd love to find out if the U.S. classifies lithium as a hazardous substance. I'm almost sure it has to, which means that our battery manufacturers are already having to deal with this price increase. They probably had to deal with it already for years and years. Well, it depends on where you mine it, right? Well, no, if it's lithium, it doesn't matter how you mine it. It's still a hazardous substance, right? It's like asbestos. It doesn't matter where asbestos comes from. It's still hazardous, and you still got to deal with asbestos differently once it's classified as a hazardous substance than when it wasn't. Right. No, I get that. It's just, I don't know what we have in place here. Is there a place to mine lithium here in the United States? We get a little bit of lithium out of, I believe, Arizona. Not much. I thought I heard something about North Carolina. Or maybe it was North Carolina. We do a little bit. I feel like it was like East Coast-ish. One of the new things about lithium mining, though, is they're actually finding it in a high enough concentration in produced water out of oil wells that conceivably hasn't been done yet. It's been done in vitro or in the lab, but conceivably you could build a process to pull lithium out of produced waters and skip all the lithium mining. Interesting. Um, did you know how actually cool that would be? You know what would happen to everybody out there who hates the oil and gas industry if they find out that their lithium comes from oil wells? What? They have to like us. Well, yes and no, but- They, they won't have a choice. Well, right. And don't get excited, people. That technology, like I said, they've proved it in the lab. It's not cost-effective. It'll probably be a decade at the least for the yeah, attempts to make it commercial. Right. But it would be cool if they were able to pull lithium out of wastewater from wells. That would be excellent. Okay, so oil majors are lining up for the next great South American oil boom. Yeah, so Guiana- and ExxonMobil basically have done something everybody said was impossible. Uh, Guiana was, or probably still is, one of the poorest companies in Brazil. Nobody said they had any natural resources. Exxon, for 20 years, it says, yes, and they're just hard to find. Everybody else said, no, you're crazy. And Exxon said, hold my beer. <laughs> Exxon has found discovery after discovery after discovery 32. after discovery. Yep. All recoverable, all very high quality oil, very low sulfur content. And guess where Guiana happens to sit? It happens to sit on the coast, north coast of Brazil, which means transporting around the world. Oh, there you is, go. There you go, right? So this is awesome. Now, if you're listening and you're in Guyana, my first warning out of my mouth, corruption. Corruption is bad there already. When all this money starts flowing, it's going to get worse. So the people have to say, we're not going to allow corruption to happen. If you can do that, this is going to be a boom for the country. You're talking about medical care, education, infrastructure, roads, pipelines, office buildings, malls, you know, everything really cool will be poured in this country very, very soon. The other thing that's really interesting about this is how much the governments are actually cooperating with Exxon and some of the other major companies that are out there. Qatar's out there. I think Chevron's out there. Literally everybody that has the money that understands about recoverable reserves or somehow playing a part in this because the oil is high quality and cheap. 
they're looking at breaking prices around $30, $35 a barrel. And this is first production run, right? So once they get those production platforms paid off, that $30, $35 a barrel will drop down to $15 to $20 a barrel. Hey. It's conventional reservoirs. So they have a very long decline rate. Mm-hmm. So it's just really cool. The other thing is this oil is not as heavy as the Venezuela and Colombian and Ecuadorian crude, but it's close, which means our refineries would like it. Not love it, but like it. So it would be really cool if we could start shipping our light sweet crudes, which we do now to Brazil, where they can refine it and use it there. And then we have another country that, other than the Middle East and Canada and Venezuela that we can import this heavier crude in. So I think this is awesome. We've been watching this for a long time. It's great for everybody. I just, you know, word of warning to the people there, you can't let the corruption take a hold because you're not going to ever be able to get rid of it. But if you can do that, this is just a boom for the people and the culture, you know, jobs, prosperity, everybody. And once again, you know, as much as I don't like doing business with Exxon, I sincerely believe ExxonMobil is the best oil and gas yeah. engineering and project management company on the planet. Nobody else could have done this except Exxon. So hats off to Exxon for pulling this off. Okay. So speaking of Exxon, Qatar picks Exxon, Total, Shell, Conoco for mega LNG expansion. Yeah. So Qatar is saying, hey, you know what? We're the biggest exporter of LNG, but the world's catching up with us, especially the U.S., Let's double down on this. So they're trying to double the amount of LNG that they're going to export from this project. You got all the major players in there, like Paige said, Qatar, ExxonMobil, Total Energies, Shell, ConocoPhillips. Conoco. They're all playing a part in this. It's about a $30 billion investment from the partners that are doing this. Of course, nobody wants to comment on what's going on other than poor Shell. <laughs> <laughs> and I love you too, Shell. Shell looks like didn't make the cut. And so Shell's the only one that commented on it and said, we hope we will be delighted if we get selected as a winner. And I hate to tell you, Shell, but I'm pretty sure you were not didn't make the short list. Mm-hmm. But everybody else did. You're talking about building six new LNG trains. That's going to go from around 70 million tons of LNG export to 126 <laughs> million tons. <laughs> this is great for the world. This is clean, abundant, cheap, reliable energy. You know, I've been talking about natural gas forever. This sort of stuff is awesome. And I challenged uh, our U.S. producers, hey, people there in Cameron LNG, let me see you ring up. I'd like to see y'all double the exports there. And the only reason I'm saying that, because I know we have listeners from, from Cameron LNG, and I also happen to know they're looking at doubling their, their well, hey. output too. So this is just good for everybody. Once again, jobs, prosperity, and we're heading into very expensive fuel prices because of fertilizers. That 90% of the cost of fertilizer is the ammonia that comes from natural gas. So with another supply of LNG, hopefully in a couple of years, we can bring those fertilizer prices back down. We're going through a food shortage no matter what, but hopefully we can shorten how long we stay in it. Yeah. All right. So this week in petroleum history, May 30th to June 5th. And the first one on here is May 30th, 1911. First Indianapolis 500 takes seven hours. Their top speed page? The fastest cars at that time in the world in the straightaways. 75, 75 miles, miles an hour. hour. <laughs> that's pretty cool. I mean, that's where you know it's where it got its start. It is interesting to think that you could take your SUV and smoke all those race cars. <laughs> that's my slow speed, Mark. <laughs> back then in nineteen eleven. Back in nineteen eleven. Oh, it was nineteen eleven. That's uh Yeah. The cool thing about these racers is they had two seats. You know why they had two seats in a race car? Because it's lighter. They had to have a riding mechanic to fix stuff as you broke down down the track. They had no pits. They had no pits. Oh, so okay. your co-pilot That's... was your mechanic. He had to carry all the spare parts and tools and everything with him. Oh, my gosh. Oh, it makes it so much heavier. Well, heavier. And then you have these fan- speed nuts speed by at 75 miles an hour, you know, while you're trying to change fuel pumps and stuff. So it had to be quite an experience. Right. 
What's next? May 30th, 1987, Million Barrel Museum opens in Monahas, Texas. So they built this on a site that 1928, they built this basically big freaking wooden tank to store Permian Basin oil. Oh, wow. This picture is amazing. Before the frack revolution, right? This is when it was all conventional wells, all vertical wells stacked next to each other. And so this tank was 525 feet by 422 feet. It was designed to hold more than a million barrels of oil. There was no pipelines in Texas at that time. So the tank's 30-foot earthen wall sloped at a 45-degree angle and were covered in concrete. And its roof was made of California redwood. Unfortunately, the damn thing leaked. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> and they couldn't get it to stop leaking. So they abandoned it. Or they didn't abandon it. They actually sold it to a water park. So you had this big bucket swimming hole for a while. And then the water Can park. Can you imagine folded. the waves in that? The, if they made it a wave pool? Well, so here's my thing. Oil is thicker than water. It has right. more viscosity. So how much water is leaking out of that damn thing? Yeah. If they couldn't hold oil, that thing would be constantly leaking water. And then they figure out to make it a museum, which is awesome. Works itself out. Yeah, it works itself out. All right. Next one is June 1st, 1860. First book about oil published by, looks like Edwin L. Drake. Drake. Drake is, when you think of the beginning of the oil and gas industry in the U.S., that's Edwin Drake. That's who wrote this book. He was the one that spudded that well in Pennsylvania. First time to go actual true production from a business point of view. And so he wrote a book called The Wonder of the 19th Century Rock Oil in Pennsylvania. <laughs> so, and the funniest thing is, you know what, at that time, you know what the biggest advantage of crude oil was? You know why people bought it? What made it valuable? Uh, kerosene lamps. Very good. All they wanted was the kerosene for lamps. They thought that was great. Do you know what they did with the gasoline that was a byproduct of refining for the kerosene? Uh-uh. They dumped it in ponds and let it evaporate. <gasps> it was a waste product. Oh, no. Yeah. Think about that. For almost 100 years, we thought gasoline was a waste product. We just threw it away. My We gosh. kept the kerosene. Yeah, world has changed. Yeah, just a little bit. Just a little bit. All right. June 1st, 1899, Giant California oil field discovered at Kern River. Yep, we know that area extremely well. Yeah, I got to see all that. It's just literally a sea of wells. It's beautiful in a weird sort of way. Yeah. A beautiful part of California. Some of the best people I've ever met. I will say this much. The first time we went and everybody's being super nice to us and everything, and there's very nice people there. It wasn't until later that you told me that our drivers were bodyguards that I realized (laughs) maybe that's why everybody's being nice to us. I think that's exactly what that was. (laughs) But, But anyway, yep. So at that time in California, it was all wooden derricks. They were literally stacked 100 feet from each other, one after another after another. It's not how California looks now. It was the beginning of the drilling boom in California. And California listeners, that oil is still there under your feet. It's, yeah. it's still there. You can still have it. And it's much more environmentally responsible than the oil that you're importing. So if you need help with that, I don't know, buy Drake's book. <laughs> <laughs> For 25 cents. For 25. That's how much it cost back then. All right, so June 1st, 1909, secret test of revolutionary drill bit. So Howard Hughes, the crazy millionaire, right, mm-hmm. packed a secret invention in the truck of his car and drove all the way out to the Texas Plains and had a coned roller bit, which is now everywhere, right? But this was top secret. And there's a reason this was top secret. I'm going to get into a little bit later. But this is one of the first bits that would actually chew through rock, right? Instead of grinding the bit down to nothing, which is how they did it before, this actually chewed through the rock based on physics. I just think it's awesome that, you know, Howard Hughes was involved in testing this revolutionary bit. Now, this was 1909. We got more to go. Never mind. Keep going. Oh, okay. We're going to the next one. Yeah. Well, the whole thing I was going to tell you about the secret bit is this was part of the war movement 
and the U.S. was spending money on research and development on how to increase oil production in areas of the world that they knew they were going to be in conflict. So one of the things during D-Day, which the anniversary just recently passed, yes. a lot of people don't know this. We had these huge coiled pipelines on these reels that were submerged in the water. And when D-Day happened, the troops landed on Normandy. They floated these things up, connected them together, and literally lit a pipeline between France and England so they could supply the U.S. troops and our allies' troops as well. So they literally – Overnight, they built a pipeline. So that comment I made earlier about building one in the Ukraine, maybe not so impossible if we were able to pull it off in World War II. Okay, so the next one's June 1st, 1940. Dallas artist depicts life in Texas oil fields. These are beautiful. We need to put a link to this. So first thing, the two young women look awfully modern. Isn't that funny how fashion has changed and kind of made a big circle? Yeah. She has boots on, Yeah, right? she does. Now, I think it's cool that the guy's all shirtless and stuff and all ripped. Um, hey. <laughs> I'm telling you. <laughs> but, I mean, these, these are beautiful paintings. This was done in the 1930s. It's well, gorgeous. 1940. Oh, 1940. Okay, you're right. Okay. Yeah, so just great stuff here. They call them the oil-filled girls. That's sweet. All right, so June 3rd. 1979, Bay of Campeche. Campeche oil spill. Yeah, this was a devastating blowout. It happened the Gulf Coast on the Mexican side. I was going to say, yeah. that doesn't sound like Pemex had said. a horrible spill, a lot of loss of life. It took them pretty close to a year, if I remember right, to get that damn well under control. It was at that point, it was one of the biggest disasters that has ever happened in the industry. We still honor that and we still you know, have a moment of silence for the people that lost their lives, but we've learned a lot since then. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, never forget that 1979. I'm not afraid to even ask you. Nope. <laughs> okay. That was a glimmer in someone's eye. <laughs> okay. Here's my favorite one. <laughs> I was just reading it. So <laughs> June 4th, 1872, Pennsylvania oil fields bring petroleum jelly. So it's when petroleum jelly was invented. And the reason this is my favorite. Vaseline. Well, not that, but yeah, Vaseline. But petroleum jelly is in probably almost all makeup products. Yes. It's in a lot of food products. It's in a lot of baby products. It's something that's used all around the world for different things. And to think that it was somebody in the Pennsylvania oil field that came up with the idea, he was a chemist, to patent and to produce something, which he named Vaseline. It's just, I mean, just. Something that's so ambiguous to modern lifestyle, hard to believe that it was a chemist on the oil field somewhere invented it. Of course, it does come from, from petroleum. <laughs> so you I, I so. use, I still use it. I mean, I've got a dry skin, so I mean, it's helped me stay nice and pretty. Then it works. So I'm so glad, so glad you invented that. <laughs> Speaking of so glad, the Canon. We are so glad they're partners of ours. You're here in Houston. You want a place to go work, just walk up the front desk. Say we're friends at OGGN. They'll give you a free day pass. It's also where we do our industry mixers. Weekly rig count. Where are we? We are at 727 in the United States. No change. Canada's at 117, up 14. Internationally, we're at 817, up 11. All good. All good numbers. If you want to see more good numbers, including learning about possibly coming to work for OGGN as a host, go join our LinkedIn page or go follow our LinkedIn page. Just go to LinkedIn, type in OGGN, just sign up for anything that's everything that's out there. Same way with if you want to submit a question for Oil & Gas this week, either go to OGGN.com or OilAndGasThisWeek.com. If we read your question on there, you get a big shout out. If you want to know about all the Oil & Gas events that are going on, sign up for the free monthly Oil & Gas events newsletter. Link is also in the show notes. And if you'd like myself or any of our experts to come to your sales and marketing kickoff, to your investor presentations, to your car club, whatever, let us know. We can do everything from keynotes to bringing live podcasts. And speaking of that, page, mm. 
I had lunch today with a guy named Trey Dugall. He's from Lafayette, right? Oh. He works for R4 Specialties. And each year, his company have a location here in Houston, one in Lafayette. And each year around Christmas, they cook for their suppliers, their vendors, their employees. It's like a family that they get together. And Trey asked me if we could bring a live podcast. And I said, you know what? We charge for that. He goes, what if we make you gumbo? What, what we, kind of gumbo? What kind of gumbo? <laughs> I can tell you right now, Trey, we're there. <laughs> if it's got okra in it, I'm not down. No, he's not good. Trey's not going to do okra gumbo. He's just too far south. Okay, right? good. Okay, yeah. good. Ooh. Yeah, if he was like from Alexandria, Natchitoches. Yeah, no, Monroe. thank you. I don't need that slimy stuff. Yeah. yeah, but so Trey, we're happy to come to your Christmas party. We're happy to do a live podcast there and trade for some quality, good gumbo. Is that for this year? For this year. For this, the end of this year, we'll do that. Okay. Well, we might have something else to attend, but yeah, we'll see. All okay. right. That's God, it. We got everything done. So you ready to get out of here? Yep. Remember, folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.